Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. What makes a president good or bad? Are the views of conventional historians right on such things, or should we be looking for second opinions? In this lecture, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, offers his answers to these questions while taking us on a stroll through the triumphs and the follies of some of the men who have occupied the White House. Reed's presentation was delivered as part of the 2014 Acton Lecture Series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here very much. I, it just dawned on me yesterday that uh, because I recently uh, turned 60 and uh, lived, in, lived in Michigan for 30 years, I've lived actually half my life in this uh, wonderful state, and I miss it a great deal. I moved to Georgia four years ago, and uh, I recall complaining a lot about uh, uh, Michigan winters, uh, but it was three, three weeks ago when I was complaining about Atlanta's winter. I was actually stuck in Detroit trying to get back to Atlanta, not because of weather here, but because of the ice storm we had back in Atlanta, and that delayed my arrival home by a full day. So I have more respect than ever for how tough Michiganians are, and the snow removal equipment that you have uh, that we don't down in Atlanta. Well, um, I'm thrilled to be here. Chris and uh, Robert, Father Robert, have been um, great friends for a long time. I've known them since the very inception of the Acton Institute and am one of their biggest fans. And uh, I'm just thrilled that Acton has this wonderful new building and continues to grow and to do great work, uh, not only in this country, but abroad. Evaluating presidents of the United States uh, is a serious business, but I think uh, all too often it may be a little too serious. And so I hope we have a little bit of fun today uh, with what I have to share with you. I was once on a panel in New Orleans uh, with uh, George Tenet, who at that very time was head of the CIA, uh, Dick Armey, congressman from Texas, and uh, the historian Douglas Brinkley and Mark Skousen, the economist. And at one point, the moderator asked each of us to say who our favorite president was. And it was deadly serious until we got to Dick Armey. I said who my favorite was. Doug Brinkley said who his was. I think his was uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, and so on. And when we got to Dick Armey, he said, uh, well, I'm such a believer in small government I'd have to say that my favorite president was Jeff Davis because he tried to cut it in half. <laughs> and I had a, a very good friend, Tom Anderson from Tennessee, now deceased. He was a political humorist and gave endless speeches around the country, but he liked to uh, poke fun at American presidents. And he described several of them in a row in this fashion. He said that uh, Franklin Roosevelt proved that a man could be president a lifetime. Harry Truman proved that any man could be president. Dwight Eisenhower proved that we really didn't need one. And every, and every president since has proven that it's dangerous to have one. <laughs> uh, Ambrose Bierce, in his uh, The Devil's Dictionary, said this when he was describing uh, or defining the word president. He said, one of a small group of men of whom and of whom only it is positively known that immense numbers of their countrymen did not want any of them for president. <laughs> now, before I tell you uh, who I am including in my list of best and then list of worst presidents, there are several things I want to give you as, uh, as a kind of backdrop. Uh, all 43 men who have served as president, keep in mind, although the present one is the 44th. 
We count Grover Cleveland twice as the 22nd and 24th because he served two terms that were not consecutive, but all 43 of them uh, were human beings. They were flawed. They were imperfect. And they were often working with others in government who were even more flawed and imperfect. And often they were compelled to compromise on even their most deeply held beliefs. Uh, they were not dictators, so they could not get their way 100% of the time. You have to grade presidents, I think, uh, as we used to say in teaching, on the curve. Uh, but nonetheless, when I grade presidents, I tend to give the highest marks to those who upheld the Constitution, who advanced individual liberty, who kept the peace, and administered justice and other functions of government efficiently and fairly. In my book, a president gets downgraded uh, if he disregarded the Constitution or set liberty back or was too quick to involve the country in uh, overseas conflict, or was a poor administrator uh, who wasted money or talent. Uh, I don't have a firm numerical ranking of the best and the worst. I've never been able to do that, because from one day to the next, I might think this guy was our best, and then I'll come across something about another one, and I'll say, no, I think I'd bump him up maybe uh, a notch or two. So this is a somewhat fluid list. And uh, I want today to be both informative, informative and a little unconventional. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, in every case, share with you stories about the presidents who are best known. Some of the ones I'll cite as among the best are not really the best known. Let me give you three of the best presidents first, and then we'll talk about the worst ones. Again, with no particular ranking here, but... These guys are always in my list of certainly a, the half dozen best, but I'll talk about three. The first one is John Tyler, not a very well-known president to this day. Uh, served one term, a little less than one term, in fact, from 1841 to 1845. John Tyler ran with William Henry Harrison, with Harrison being the presidential nominee, on the Whig Party ticket in 1840. And who knows the famous slogan of that uh, team in 1840? Tippy Canoe and Tyler, too. Well, Harrison, who was uh, from Indiana, it's arguable that he was the best president of all uh, 43. If you, if you were to judge presidents in terms of who did the least amount of harm, <laughs> it'd have to be Harrison because he only had a month to do it. Uh, he caught cold on Inauguration Day and uh, died a month later, at which time John Tyler became our new president. Well, it was really a, a pretty good uh, four years uh, under John Tyler for a lot of reasons. Tyler himself uh, was not a lifelong Whig. He was an ex-Democrat of the party of Jefferson and Jackson. Uh, but he uh, be became a Whig not long before Harrison chose him as his running mate, and he kept a lot of his old Democratic, his old Jeffersonian uh, uh, sympathies, even as he transferred uh, to the new party. Uh, it, he broke really with Jackson over the issue of the South Carolina attempt to nullify a federal tariff law. He thought Jackson was a little bit uh, too belligerent, and so that prompted him to switch parties. But he never really changed many of his uh, particular or specific views on the role of government. When Tyler became president upon the unexpected death of Harrison, immediately the question was, well, is this guy really president? Uh, or is he an acting president? Uh, are we simply uh, seeing a caretaker take office? Will this be an opportunity for the Congress to assert more uh, powers within um, our system of checks and balances. That was an important issue, and it could have been a major constitutional crisis. But to Tyler's credit, uh, he made it plain right from the start that as he read the Constitution, he was not acting president, he was the president, with no fewer powers or authorities or responsibilities than the man who headed the ticket and who had just died. He moved into the White House immediately, and part of uh, one reason for that was to assert the fact that he was, in fact, president in every way with no uh, qualifications. Uh, so I admire uh, Tyler for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them. The fact that he 
Uh, if he had been a timid president, unwilling to assert his authority, uh, we could have seen the, the separation of powers tip uh, in the wrong direction uh, and, and uh, become out of balance if he hadn't asserted his proper authority. Tyler, during the uh, almost four years he served as president, went against the Whig agenda on almost every major issue, against the party that had nominated him for vice president. Uh, he ended the bloodiest war against uh, uh, American Indians in our history, the Second Seminole War, and he did it by allowing uh, the remaining Seminoles to stay on their reservations in Florida, uh, which was a magnanimous and honorable gesture at a time when the nation had just endured, uh, not too many years before, uh, the terrible trail of tears uh, that started under the Jackson administration. Tyler also greatly improved relations with Great Britain, and he did that in a couple of ways. There had been a boundary dispute uh, between New Brunswick and Maine, uh, New Brunswick in Canada and the state of Maine, and uh, 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 Tyler agreed with Britain uh, to uh, uh, settle that dispute and to prevent it from uh, flaring up into any kind of a conflict. But he also uh, joined with Britain in agreeing to jointly enforce a ban against the slave trade. Those are two foreign policy uh, 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 ventures that I think Tyler should get a great deal of credit for. But it's his economic program that I thought was uh, especially laudable. Uh, and again, because he largely opposed the Whig platform, which I think was wrong on almost everything, uh, for reasons I'll share with you in just a moment. Uh, he set uh, the, uh, a, a, not a record, but he was number two, I guess, up to his time in terms of the number of vetoes that he cast. Jackson, I think, was... Uh, uh, with the record holder and would remain so for, until Grover Cleveland. Only one of his ten vetoes was overridden. Let me list a few of the vetoes for you because uh, these, I think, uh, are among his finest moments. Tyler vetoed the bill to recharter a national bank. And in my mind, as a free market economist and a hard money man, I think that was a sound gesture. I think Jackson actually was right in killing the second bank of the United States in 1836 because it had been an inflationary institution manipulating money and credit and that the federal government, I believe, has really no uh, constitutional function or uh, vital uh, function in any way uh, in creating a national or central bank. And the country did fine without one. But the Whig platform specifically called for its restoration. He vetoed bills uh, to distribute aid to the states. And he issued those vetoes for the right reasons, explaining that the states should raise their own money. It's not the business of the federal government to uh, uh, be distributing uh, aid to the states. And with all the politics and uh, strife that, uh, that that carries with it quite often. He vetoed many, uh, uh, several bills for internal improvements and stopped others from ever getting to his desk. Internal improvements in that day meant things like railroads, canals, roads. Uh, there was a great debate going for several decades in the country about what the federal government's role in that was. Should it be state and local or is there a federal role? Tyler was one of those uh, who believed that this was a state and local issue and rarely uh, should involve uh, the federal government. I think he learned something from the experience of even state, quote, internal improvements in the form of subsidies to certain businesses uh, in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, many of you may know that Michigan has a storied history in this area of funding internal improvements. Our first governor here, Stephen T. Mason, was a big advocate uh, for state funding of railroads and canals. And that proved to be such a disaster, by the way, that almost all of them either went uh, belly up or had to be privatized uh, by the end of the Mason administration. Uh, my good colleague, uh, Bert Folsom, who teaches at Hillsdale College uh, part of the year and then uh, does a lot of speaking for us uh, during the year too, uh, he's written about some of these Michigan internal improvements, including uh, the railroads, uh, that were never completed, but uh, 
uh, had very circuitous routes uh, trying to connect east and west. And the routes were circuitous because you had legislators always saying, hey, I want the railroad to go through my town. So instead of building one, you know, from point A to point B in pretty much of a straight line, they were going like this, uh, connecting uh, towns because of political pull. And there was the famous Clinton to Kalamazoo Canal that never got very far. And I recall, though, the, the exact numbers involving how much was spent on it in state subsidies and what it actually yielded in revenue. Again, Bert Folsom uh, brought these numbers to light. Uh, and these are in 1840 dollars. The state of Michigan spent about 400,000 dollars. That would be several million in today's dollars on the Clinton to Kalamazoo Canal. But when they finally threw in the towel and got out of it, uh, it had raised a grand total of 90 dollars and 32 cents. So, I think Tyler understood that even state governments didn't have a good. Uh, track record in this, let alone uh, the federal government. He was a strong advocate of sound money uh, at a time when there were rising choruses for uh, increasing the money supply, whether in the form of silver or paper money. Uh, he supported lower tariffs, uh, which was not something that the Whig Party stood for. They were in just the opposite camp. So you find during his four years a, uh, an often stymied president, but one who stood four square and courageously for what I think were the right things uh, against even uh, uh, his own party's um, uh, positions. Uh, when he sought renomination in 1844, the Whig Party refused uh, to give him renomination, so he left office and did not uh, serve a second term. But I rank him among America's best, not only because he stood for what I think are the, the right things most of the time, uh, but also because he was quite courageous uh, in doing so in principle uh, time and again. A second of our best presidents may also be one you've heard little about because he served so little time, and that's James A. Garfield, uh, our 20th president. Uh, uh, there's a great book that has come out only in the last half dozen years. I would highly recommend to you if you're interested in learning more about Garfield, it's by Candace Millard, M-I-L-L-A-R-D, and it's entitled Destiny of a Republic. And she brings out in her book uh, one of the, uh, Garfield's most endearing qualities. He didn't want the office. And I say that's endearing because, uh, frankly, uh, I think that one of the, the most refreshing attributes of a politician is one who really doesn't lust for the office has plenty of other things he could do if he doesn't make it. Doesn't feel as though he has to cut corners or prevaricate or deceive or tell different audiences different things, take one position here and a different position there uh, in order to gain office. I think it's so refreshing when someone feels like, look, I have other things I can do. If you like what I uh, promise and vote for me, great, I'll serve you. If not, I'll go back to private life. Well, Garfield was of that view in the extreme, um, at least with regard to the presidency. He, he was a congressman, but he had no desire to serve as president. But when that moment came, he rose to the occasion. But it was in 1880 that uh, Congressman Garfield went to the Republican convention for the purpose of putting into nomination the name of another man, another Ohioan, John Sherman, senator, uh, for the presidential nomination. But during his speech on behalf of Sherman, there was a rising chorus uh, for Garfield. In fact, at one point, Garfield says in his speech, and who do we want? And he's expecting everyone to shout Sherman, and somebody, uh, a couple voices holler Garfield, which starts a rising chorus. We want Garfield, we want Garfield. And uh, uh, he had to run around the convention for the next uh, literally a day tamping down uh, this uh, rising chorus of support for him. He didn't want it. Uh, and in fact, uh, he spent most of uh, a Saturday and Sunday uh, doing that very thing, visiting with delegations saying, don't vote for me. When, <laughs> when the balloting finally uh, resumed, it ended up going, I think, to some 36 ballots. 
before uh, actually Garfield got the nomination. But along the way, as his vote total was rising and he was frantically advising people not to vote for him, he actually grabbed the platform and started to say, Mr. Chairman, the rules of this convention require that no man's name can be put in nomination unless he wants it put in nomination. <laughs> and he was gaveled down. He was told by the chairman to sit down, take your seat and be quiet. And it was like two ballots later when he wins the Republican nomination. Uh, the Candace Millard reports his first reaction was he said, turned to a friend and said, I think I'm going to be sick <laughs> and, and asked for permission to leave the room. Uh, now, uh, however, uh, when he felt that duty did call him and so he didn't fight it thereafter and he ran a credible campaign and was elected. Uh, you would never know from the day he took office that he didn't want it because he really uh, knew the importance of acting as president and carrying out a, a program. And that program uh, was uh, in many ways similar to John Tyler's, or at least uh, I like it for similar reasons. Uh, Garfield was for small government. He was um, for uh, lower tariffs. Uh, he was for sound money. In fact, as a congressman in 1868, and we have this on our website. If you go to fee.org and type in uh, Garfield, uh, you'll, you'll see this. He gave one of the best speeches over two hours long without notes on behalf of sound money. And it included a detailed um, a description of uh, previous periods of inflation, uh, caused by government printing of money or, or uh, debasing of coinage, including a detailed outline of uh, the American hyperinflation of the continental dollar during the early years of the War for Independence. I mean, this man knew his history. And uh, so I, I greatly admire Garfield for uh, his strength of character as well as the positions that he took. But the sad thing, of course, is he was in office only four months uh, when he was shot uh, and he lingered for another two months before dying in September uh, of 1881. I've often thought that uh, he showed such uh, signs of greatness that uh, if he had lived out his full term, uh, he might well be regarded by most historians as among America's great uh, presidents. A third one I want to cite for you as uh, being one of our best is personally my favorite. That doesn't mean I'd rank him number one necessarily, but I have enjoyed studying this man more than any other. And that is Grover Cleveland, our 22nd and 24th. I had the good fortune in 1995 of actually spending an evening with his son. Now think of that. Grover Cleveland was elected president in 1884, the first time. And in 1995, he had a son who was still living. I spent an evening with him, his name was Francis, named for uh, his mother, in Tamworth, New Hampshire. And while there, I said, uh, Francis, you have to understand what a thrill this is to me to be meeting with a man whose father, not grandfather, but father, was elected president of the United States 111 years ago. How is that possible? I'm talking to his kid in 1995. And he said, uh, oh, that's nothing. Uh, Cleveland's uh, Mary Late and have children late, and my grandfather, Grover's dad, was uh, a baby when Thomas Jefferson was in the White House. And I looked it up afterwards, and sure enough, Grover's father was born during Thomas Jefferson's second term, and here I am talking to Grover's son in 1995. He shared a lot of stories, uh, not personally about his father, because he was only five when Grover died in 1908. He was the fifth of uh, five Cleveland children, by the way, and uh, uh, was born when Grover was 67 and was six years gone from the White House. Yeah, he was born in 1903. And uh, so uh, one of the stories I wanted to tell you real quick was uh, uh, that his mother had given him. In fact, most of these stories had been passed down from, by his mother because she lived until 1947. Can you imagine that? She outlived Grover by almost 40 years. The reason for that is 
when they were married in the White House in 1886. Uh, the, he was the first president to be married in the White House. He was 49 and she was 21. And she was not an intern. Okay, so this, uh, just to uh, settle that right up front here. <laughs> and they had a very happy and fruitful marriage. Uh, but he told me that uh, the White House hadn't been wired for telephone very long during that uh, first term. Not many people in the country yet had telephones. It had only made its debut at, in 1876. And uh, he said on weekends, uh, mother would be gone out shopping or whatever, and the White House staff was gone, and often Grover would be the only one there. If you were lucky enough to have a telephone then, and some people did, and if you called the White House on a Saturday and said, may I speak to the president, you'd typically get a voice that would say, speaking. Because Grover was answering the telephone in the White House uh, on weekends quite often. Why do I like Grover Cleveland? Grover Cleveland stood for all the right things and for all the right reasons. He was for sound money. He was for balanced budgets. He was for free trade. He was for lower tariffs, lower taxes, small government. Uh, he was against uh, foreign adventurism. And he came to these conclusions not because he was a man of many college degrees. He was no economist, never went to college. After high school, he taught for one year at the New York Institution for the Blind and later moved to Buffalo, New York, and became a successful lawyer. He, you, you can't say that uh, he was extraordinarily well-read or, or pedigreed, but he had something that uh, I wish more presidents, more Americans, whatever your walk of life, had these days, and that is character. He's one of those few presidents who saw almost every issue through the lens of character, what he thought was fundamentally right or wrong. Not according to what's this group want, or what will win me re-election, or what will keep these people happy. He would always ask himself, what is the right thing to do? He was the son of a stern Presbyterian minister who taught uh, solid values from early on. He came to uh, su strongly support sound money uh, and the gold standard, Again, not because it was an economist, but because he thought anything less was dishonesty. He heard the voices in the country calling for inflation, either in the form of depreciating silver or paper money. And to him, that wasn't just bad economics. It was fundamentally dishonest. To cheat people of the value of their money through inflation of it is just fundamentally a bad and wrong thing to do. He was for free trade and for the right reasons mainly because he saw uh, the, uh, the call for protectionist tariffs as a cynical use of the power of government by some against their competitors in the marketplace. And that isn't what a person of solid character should do. You don't try to use government to, uh, to stick it to your competition. You compete with them in the, in the marketplace. Uh, he came to so many of these conclusions and for the right reasons. And uh, before I move on to our worst presidents, I want to tell you a couple more quick things about Cleveland. In 1888, he ran for re-election, but was defeated by Benjamin Harrison. Not in the uh, popular vote, but he lost in the Electoral College. And I can't help but recall back in 2000, when it was so apparent to me what a sore loser Al Gore was, I thought back to Grover Cleveland's response. He was actually asked at a, uh, a news conference what he thought about getting more popular votes than the other guy but losing the job. And he didn't fret about it. He didn't complain about it. He simply replied, those are the rules. We all knew them. What's the big deal? I mean, so he uh, never fussed about it. But he kept an eye on Harrison and uh, uh, his successor. And uh, uh, four years later, decided to challenge the incumbent, Harrison, and beat him in 1892 and became president a second time, uh, the only president to serve two terms that were not consecutive. In the second term, he faced two major crises. One was personal, 
and was, one was national and economic in nature. The personal crisis uh, was this. He took office in March of 93. The country was gripped uh, in the beginnings of a panic, which would produce within months a very serious depression, second worst in American history. He was about to call the Congress into special session in June of 93 for the purpose of repealing the law that primarily was causing the problem, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. And uh, just before doing that, he was bothered by a, a bump in his mouth on his upper palate. Uh, bothered enough to see a physician who diagnosed him as uh, uh, having malignant cancer and the tumor had to come out. He had to keep this secret because, for a lot of reasons, but one was he had a, a, a kind of a goofball for vice president. Uh, in those days, uh, the president often didn't handpick his running mate. The conventions would do that, and they'd picked a man from Illinois whose name you'll recognize, Adlai Stevenson, the grandfather of the one we know better from the 50s and the 60s. But Stevenson was wrong on most things, including the most important pressing national issue of the day, gold, silver, paper money, what do we do with uh, our monetary system? It was, that, uh, it was that issue that was at the root of the panic and depression of 93. So Cleveland couldn't have the country gripped by yet another panic over the president's health. So he went off on a boat. Wouldn't you think of that? If you have a sensitive operation you need, wouldn't you think about having it on a boat? Uh, on the East River in New York with a team of doctors uh, to perform the necessary operation. They didn't go in this way because they didn't want to leave scars and endless questions later about what had happened. They went in this way, removed uh, much of his upper palate, much of his upper jawbone, uh, took the tumor out, which to this day, you can still see, it's in a jar, no kidding, in the Mutter Museum of Medical Oddities in Philadelphia. So you still see a little bit of Grover Cleveland. And uh, they replaced what they took out with a uh, prosthetic of vulcanized rubber and did it so well that uh, the country didn't know uh, the difference. And he called the Congress back into session in August and secured the repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act uh, by the end of the year. And that put the country, uh, at least uh, he accomplished the necessary precondition before the country could recover from that very painful depression. When he died in 1908, his last words on his deathbed couldn't have been scripted better. He said, I have tried so hard to do what I thought was right. And that really sums up Grover Cleveland and his entire lifetime. All right, how about the worst? How much time do we have? <laughs> the first one is one I've actually mentioned already, but you may not know a whole lot about because he's been largely forgotten, and that's Benjamin Harrison. I rank Benjamin Harrison of Indiana, our 23rd president, between the two Cleveland terms as one of our worst presidents for several reasons. One, he supported uh, and signed into law the McKinley Tariff, which raised tariffs to an all-time high uh, against foreign nations in 1890. He signed into law the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was one of the most vague uh, laws ever put on uh, the statute books in America, opening up a great deal of mischief uh, for the federal government in the areas of antitrust. He signed into law the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, which was the primary cause of the panic and depression that began in 1893. He was a big spender. It was during uh, his term that we started calling the Congress the Billion Dollar Congress. And that was a, definitely a, a negative, a, a pejorative, because this was the first Congress in American history that spent a billion dollars in two years. Okay, we do that in, what, two hours now. Uh, the billion dollars then did mean a lot more than uh, a billion today, for sure. But uh, he signed into law many spending bills that Cleveland would clearly have vetoed. And uh, another reason I uh, regard him as one of our worst is he tried to grab Hawaii under rather dishonorable circumstances. 
Uh, one of his last gestures in office was to submit to the Senate a, uh, an agreement to annex Hawaii, and that was one of the first things that Cleveland withdrew when he took office after Harrison, uh, and arguing that we have no business meddling in the internal affairs of other peoples uh, as we had done to grab Hawaii. So Harrison is on my list of worst. My next one is one that may spark a lot of controversy here, and that is uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Because I know he's still to this day in many parts of the country uh, admired as one of our best. I think he was one of our worst. In 1932, when he ran for president the first time, uh, he ran on a platform that, with few exceptions, he failed to implement almost from the day he took office. He had said one thing and did precisely the opposite during his term in office. Conventional history texts like to tell us that Herbert Hoover, Roosevelt's predecessor, was uh, a hands-off, laissez-faire, do-nothing, stand-pat president who just sat back, did nothing, and allowed the Depression to happen, when in fact he was uh, radically interventionist. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can look at what Roosevelt said about him in the 1932 campaign. Roosevelt ran against Hoover on a platform uh, excoriating the Hoover administration for being the greatest spending and taxing administration in American history. Those are uh, FDR's precise words. The greatest spending and taxing administration in American history. Hoover had raised tariffs to an all-time high, and uh, higher even than the McKinley Tariff of 1890, virtually closing America's borders to trade, uh, taking a recession and making it a depression back in 1930, and Roosevelt properly uh, attacked him for that. Uh, and then his vice presidential candidate, John Nance Garner, uh, accused Hoover of, quote, leading the country down the path to socialism. Accused Hoover of that, and he was right. I mean, we were headlong in the direction of massive spending increases, tax increases, bigger deficits, higher tariffs, lots of new bureaucracies, bailout programs, all of that under Hoover. Uh, the Roosevelt platform in 1932 called for a, an immediate 25% reduction in federal spending. That was the biggest proposed reduction in federal spending of any major party in American history. And that's the platform that Roosevelt ran on. But I think you know enough of our recent history to know that he did none of those things upon taking office and immediately implemented uh, uh, what he called the New Deal, a package of uh, measures that, uh, in my estimation and that of, uh, of other economists who have studied this uh, far more carefully uh, than me, prolonged the Great Depression by some seven years. Early in his first term as part of the New Deal, we got the National Industrial Recovery Act which is driven by this crazy idea that the problem in the economy is there's too much competition. Every time a businessman raises his price, uh, it may stand a chance of making a little more money and stimulating the economy thereby. Somebody else undercuts him by cutting his price. And so the problem is we've, we've got to stop that. So the NIRA uh, created the NRA, National Recovery Administration, which imposed comprehensive uh, uh, price controls and price codes throughout the economy, all in an effort to raise prices in an already depressed economy. It was a great, uh, a great example of this uh, involved a tailor from New Jersey named Jack Magid, who was prosecuted under this law for pressing a suit of clothes for the price of 35 cents instead of the official code price of 40 cents. So think of that. I mean, here's a guy, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to have a suit of clothes to be pressed in the midst of a depression, here's a guy who says, I'll do it for 35 cents. He gets prosecuted because he didn't charge you 40 in the name of economic recovery. One man's price is another man's cost. So by forcing prices up, you just force costs up for other people. This was a kind of weird redistribution through mandated price hikes. Uh, it was not helpful to the economy. And at the same time, within a month of the passage of that law, Roosevelt gave us the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, 
which uh, in an attempt to raise farm prices, laid waste to um, huge swaths of American corn, wheat, and other grains, and also ordered the destruction of a great many um, farm animals. In fact, in one particular order, just one of many, Agriculture Secretary Henry Wallace ordered the, the destruction of six million baby pigs. The idea here was, again, well, we can raise prices, and that means then the farmer will get more. Of course, he's going to have a lot less to sell. <laughs> and even if this had helped the farmers, it could have done so only at the expense of everybody else. Of course, agriculture is in terrible shape by 1933. You've got the Federal Reserve uh, ratcheting down the money supply after having inflated it in the 1920s. You've got a general deflation that's causing prices to fall because of what the Fed is doing. You've got the Smoot-Hawley tariff that Roosevelt campaigned against in 1930 that had shut the door effectively to American farm exports. The answer to all of that is, is not to pile on with a new regulation that destroys things of value, but rather to address the core of the problem and remove those barriers and restrictions. But Roosevelt had his own bag of tricks and was constantly uh, imposing them. His tax record is abominable. Uh, he assailed Hoover for raising taxes. From The high rate was 24% when Hoover took office. Before he was done, he raised it to uh, 73, or 65, 65%. Roosevelt campaigned against him for raising taxes, but before he's done and before the war, the top rate will begin to approach 80%. There was a time in Roosevelt's third term when um, he proposed to Congress a 100% income tax rate on all incomes over $25,000. Can you imagine that? If you make $25,000, you might then be in the 80% rate, but uh, on the next dollar, he wanted all of it. He wanted all of everything you made beyond $25,000. In the midst of a Great Depression, what does this do to incentives for investment, for instance? If the president says, if you got a, very much at all, I want to take everything you've got beyond 25000 Congress uh, had to intervene and prevent that. First of all, he tried to do it by executive order. And the Congress said, wait a minute, the president doesn't set the tax rates. Uh, and they rescinded it. But uh, that's what he tried for. So uh, uh, in the end, I think... Uh, you can say that Roosevelt took a bad situation and prolonged it by at least seven years. Uh, and for that reason alone, I rank him among uh, our very worst presidents. Uh, there's much more that could be said, too. He's, in many ways, the father of our welfare state today. We're still paying the price for that. Uh, but uh, he's not one of our better presidents. But I reserve the spot of worst president uh, for the next one. Any guesses? Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and I blame Teddy Roosevelt in part for Woodrow Wilson too, by the way, because it was Teddy's ego that gave us Woodrow Wilson when Teddy came back to try to secure the presidency again in 1912 and split the uh, non-Wilson vote so that Wilson could squeak in with barely 40% uh, percent of the vote. Woodrow Wilson... Um, uh, is going to be hard to beat uh, as our worst president, in my estimation, although uh, the current one is in the running. Uh, Woodrow Wilson campaigned on a, a platform of having kept us out of World War I, but five months into his second term, he made sure we got into it. And the damage that our entry into World War I and that that conflict in general did uh, to... Uh, uh, the world, I think, for generations thereafter is almost incalculable. Um, he pressured and bribed the provisional government of Alexander Kerensky in Russia, which had overthrown the Tsar. He pressured and bribed them with uh, the equivalent of about $4 billion in today's money to stay in the war. So I'm faulting Roosevelt for getting us into a war I don't think we had any business being in. But on top of it, he bribed... Uh, the Kerensky government to stay in the war, which arguably ended up giving us the Bolsheviks. Because the main reason that the Kerensky government came to power was opposition to the war 
and they're staying in it uh, in part because of Rosa, or, uh, Wilson's uh, uh, subsidy. Uh, uh, made them so unpopular, it laid the foundation for the coming of the Bolsheviks. When Re- Wilson realized the harm that he had done, he actually reversed his policy and committed thousands of American troops and lots of money to Russian soil for the purpose of overthrowing the Bolsheviks, which of course was not successful. After the war, he campaigned for the Treaty of Versailles, which was a major cause of World War II. Wilson was so hung up on the League of Nations that he was willing to swallow all the extraordinarily harsh provisions in the Treaty of Versailles to get that uh, without uh, any conception of what those harsh provisions could, uh, could lead to uh, in coming years. And of course, 20 years later, we have World War II, which was a direct consequence of World War I. He was the most interventionist president in American history. He invaded Mexico, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama, and it's hard for me to say what good came of any of those interventions uh, in all those years. His support, direct or indirect, helped to give us the income tax. Uh, uh, William Howard Taft actually got the ball rolling on that, but Wilson was all for it and saw it through to ratification in his first year as president. The top rate was 7%. At the time, it was thought that it, the rate would never go beyond 10%. But before Wilson is done, the first president under the income tax, before he's done, the top rate will be 73%. So it didn't take very long for him to take that 7% and uh, grow it dramatically. He also gave us the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, the direct election of senators, which I think uh, greatly undermined our system of federalism. America's founders set up the U.S. Senate to be elected by state legislatures for some good reasons. And one of them was they wanted the U.S. Senate to be answerable to elected state legislators. They, wanted, uh, they didn't want the U.S. Senate to be sort of a, uh, a big grab bag for the mob, you might say. They wanted uh, the senators to be answerable to their states, uh, directly to the state governments. Can you imagine the difference it might have made if we'd never passed the 17th Amendment uh, before. If, uh, can you imagine what difference it would have made, let's say, on federally un- federal mandates that are unfunded? We have a slew of those that are costing the states a fortune. But if senators were appointed by state legislatures, they'd be answerable to the very folks uh, back home who would have to uh, uh, pay the bill. Uh, for those unfunded mandates. So I, I really think it undermined federalism a great deal uh, to have passed that amendment. Wilson gave us the Federal Reserve System. And I know that that's something that in many places is sort of sacrosanct, but I can honestly not think of another federal agency that has more fully failed its mandate uh, in the hundred years it's been around. Uh, we've been told over the years the Fed is to provide just the right amount of currency, protect the integrity of the dollar, provide, promote full employment, iron out the business cycle. But in its tenure, we've seen a Great Depression that even Mr. Bernanke said was caused by the Fed. Nine or ten recessions, in many cases caused by Fed uh, uh, money and credit policy. And a dollar that's worth now about a nickel of what it was when they started out. Uh, I give Wilson a lot of blame for that, and also for Prohibition, which is one of the most colossal failures of American policy of the 20th century. Wilson was repressive at home, clamping down on civil liberties uh, during the war. One man from Lansing, Michigan, in fact, was sentenced to 20 years and a $20,000 fine for criticizing the war. Uh, He was, uh, on a personal level, reprehensible. Uh, as a racist and white supremacist. Uh, If you don't believe me, I urge you to read um, some of, uh, this is not hard to find, but you've got to dig a little bit. Some of his uh, comments on race issues are absolutely unspeakably uh, horrible. Um, Just unbelievable that a man could say such things. Uh, He helped to resegregate parts of the federal government that had been previously desegregated. He gave a green light to his cabinet members to segregate anything they could. Uh, he was really a nasty uh, uh, person in, in that regard. 
just as Teddy Roosevelt gave us Wilson, uh, you could say that Woodrow gave us Edith because uh, for about a year and a half after Wilson's stroke, Edith Wilson, his second wife, was for all intents and purposes the president of the United States. He was nearly incapacitated, and, uh, but she was no better, uh, unfortunately, and pretty much did, I think, as uh, Woodrow might have done. Uh, so I rank Woodrow Wilson not only among the worst, but I would give him the honor of being the worst American president. With that, uh, I'm going to hope I've said enough to prompt some thoughts and questions and open it up to you. Thank you. Join me in thanking Larry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just, good, raise your hand and then uh, speak right into the top of the mic. We like Jerry Ford. <laughs> An honorable man, no question about it. Uh, if he'd had four years instead of, what, two and a half, we'd have a much greater record to comment on, but he did a creditable job while he was there. Other questions? I, by the way, since I'm in uh, Georgia now, I have to be careful uh, before some audiences. Jimmy Carter's not all that uh, popular, but still, uh, when I was asked what I thought of uh, some recent presidents, and I knew they wanted me to say something about Carter. The most I said was that Jerry Ford was the best president between Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. So. <laughs> That's diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> Can you comment on some of the pressures on even what you might call uh, conservative or Republican presidents who seem to have nominated some of the worst Supreme Court justices we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one of the biggest disappointments, of course, uh, in our recent times uh, would be John Roberts, uh, a good man in so many ways and who's uh, done the right thing most of the time, but on such a critical uh, issue uh, to cook up a reason to justify Obamacare as he did was really uh, almost inexplicable. Um, of course, every president's pressured from all sides when a Supreme Court uh, appointment comes up. Some spend more time looking into their background and their previous decisions and philosophy uh, than others do. I think the best chief justice of all time um, and one of the best justices uh, of any court in America was Melville Fuller, Chief Justice Melville, Melville Fuller, appointed by uh, Grover Cleveland. He was uh, the most uh, small government, pro-private property uh, Chief Justice uh, in our history. The Fuller Court is known to this day as one of the, um, perhaps the Supreme Court that was most devoted to upholding property rights and um, uh, the um, provisions for small government. Uh, but Cleveland did his homework. He knew enough about Fuller, uh, knew of his convictions that he had good reason to believe that's the way he'd, he'd vote. But no president knows you know, how um, a justice might evolve over time, what influences he may come under during his time. So um, I'm thinking back to uh, uh, Jerry Ford's appointment of John Paul Stevens. My guess is he probably thought that Stevens was going to work out better than he did. Stevens was not one of our uh, better justices, but um, I think that surprised a lot of people. Stevens did not have the understanding of the Constitution and its limitations on power uh, that he should have. Uh, I don't know if he can fault Jerry Ford for that or not, but um, uh, there are just endless pressures, and you just cannot ascertain for certain, you know, once a guy's been on the bench for 10, 20 years, how he might evolve. So it's always a bit of a crapshoot. Other questions? Thank you. Your comment about the 17th Amendment, um, what was going on? What was the impetus or catalyst behind that? Uh, the 17th Amendment uh, had been percolating for a while. This was um, the, during the rise of the so-called progressive movement and repeal of that provision for uh, legislative appointment of senators was high on the progressive agenda. Uh, progressives really felt strongly, still do to this day, of course, uh, that uh, 
a strong central government with uh, a wise, educated elite uh, can guide us all to whatever. And, uh, uh, and they saw state legislatures as too jealously guarding of their prerogatives and, and powers, that they were a roadblock to the centralization of power in Washington, and that had to go. Uh, now, that wasn't the reason they publicly gave uh, for supporting repeal. They gave more, quote, democratic reasons. They said, well, why should those legislators pick your senators? We should trust you to do it. Sounded so democratic. Uh, and they seldom talked about the reasons the founders made it the way uh, that they did, because those were some pretty sound reasons. So it was uh, a, an important item on the progressive agenda, and they got it. Um, I have a question for you regarding presidential foreign policy. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking, where? Presidential oh, I'm sorry. foreign policy. Uh, yes, uh-huh. I'd like to know when you think a president is justified in advocating an interventionist action or policy? Okay. When is a president justified in an interventionist foreign policy? I'll, I'll start answering that by saying, as a rule, uh, I think that American foreign policy should be driven by one primary uh, purpose, and that is to uh, protect the legitimate security interests of this country. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's never a cause for an intervention. For example, during the Reagan years, uh, I actually supported the uh, policy of the administration to aid the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. Uh, that was very controversial, even uh, across a broad front. Uh, but I felt that intervention was justified there because we were locally fighting part of a bigger battle that emanated from Moscow and that the president was right that uh, uh, this was a foray by a declared enemy, uh, for all intents and purposes, into our hemisphere with uh, nefarious purposes. Uh, if the Sandinista government in Nicaragua had uh, uh, conducted all of its repressive measures but not in alliance with the Soviets, I think I would have opposed intervention. I would have said, gee, welcome to the club. There's about 150 countries doing nasty things to their people. Uh, but I saw it as part of the uh, Cold War conflict. So in that sense, uh, you could call me an interventionist. So I'd follow that general rule I gave you. But I wouldn't be so blind and oblivious as to fail to see occasions when, uh, in a backdoor way, uh, somebody is trying to uh, position themselves to ultimately do us harm. But I would not send troops overseas just to, uh, you know, as a Meals on Wheels operation, or, you know, I don't, don't think that's the purpose of the American military. The legitimate security interests of this country uh, basically are uh, what's constitutional, and anything less than that is dubious. Comment, if you would, a little on our current president, uh, as well as current issues, Keystone Pipeline, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, if I sound hesitant, it's not because I don't have strong views on this, but uh, part of me says, you know, the man has three more years, and uh, we'll be uh, better able to judge him during that time, and I want to give everybody a shot at redemption. Uh, you know, maybe he could get better. But uh, so far, this has been a, a, a very, very poor administration from a number of angles. One, just administratively, I think uh, President Obama is a lousy manager. I, I don't think he manages anything. I, th I think he's pretty much a speechmaker. Uh, and uh, even his signature legislation, the health care law, he wasn't really all that much involved in it. He told Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, here, you write it up. Um, and uh, he's just not personally involved uh, in running the administration. So managerially, I think he's very challenged. Uh, but on policy, he's almost always on the wrong side. Uh, I had a, 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 a real uh, scary moment during the State of the Union speech recently. Uh, scary because it immediately recalled to me instances that I'm aware of from ancient Roman history. Uh, when uh, there were occasions during the latter period of the Republic as it was crumbling and Roman liberties were giving way to what would become an eventual dictatorship, uh, 
with the crumbling of the republic all around them, you had many occasions when uh, Roman senators and members of the popular assembly eagerly gave their powers and prerogatives to the executive. And during the State of the Union, you remember when Mr. Obama effectively said to the Congress, you know, I'm going to look for ways to go around you. I'm going to do what I want when I can, even if it means I'm not going to involve, you know, those kinds of things. Um, what did more than half the Senate do? They stood and applauded. They stood and applauded, effectively saying, great, take our powers from us. Uh, I, it just uh, was scary. I don't think the man has much regard for the Constitution or, or the duties that uh, are required of him. He's rewriting law at, at uh, the drop of a hat. Uh, he's the godfather, if not the actual author, of uh, uh, the most horrendous intervention into health care in, in uh, American history. Uh, he's a tax hiker. He's uh, oblivious to the size and scope of the national debt and supports just about any new spending that comes along. Um, just wrong on everything. Completely, it's just a, a mind-blowing to me that, that you could look at the numbers that stare us in the face of unsustainable uh, debt and spending and uh, growth of bureaucracy and what have you. And President Obama is utterly oblivious to it. Wants more of it. XL Pipeline, uh, uh, for, from all that I can see as a lay person on this issue, that ought to go through. And uh, for not just domestic reasons, but for foreign policy reasons. We ought to be exporting the heck out of uh, uh, our oil and gas resources, as well as securing them for ourselves here uh, in a world that uh, is too dependent upon shaky places for their oil and gas. Ukraine on Russia, uh, much of the West on the Middle East, and so forth. Uh, we could solve a lot of problems by uh, producing our way uh, to... Uh, you know, uh, out of this, the oil and gas situation, but uh, he's not for it. He's hung up on these goofy, subsidized green initiatives. Uh, well, yeah, it's not likely but, uh, at, at this point, but I, I wouldn't discount the possibility that any person um, could not come to his senses and say, I'm wrong. Uh, we've been going down the wrong path. That's not likely to happen, but uh, uh, not with this guy. But he does have three years to, uh, to try. So um, politicians as different as Reagan and Obama like to be compared favorably to Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And yet there are a lot of, well, there are some historians nowadays who are looking at Lincoln a lot more critically. Yes. And don't necessarily see him as the greatest president as, as several. Um, how would you rate him uh, in your list and uh, where, where would you fall on that spectrum? Yeah, there is a lot of what I would call Lincoln idolatry, unquestioning uh, adoration uh, for the man. And I really think you need to be more uh, critical and objective in analyzing a president. Uh, Abe Lincoln is a guy that, I, on a personal level, he's probably one of the two or three I would most like to have a moment with. I think he's endearing in many respects on a personal level. Fascinating man. Uh, but on a policy level, uh, he left much to be desired. Uh, he was a high-tariff man. Uh, oh, he, he, I don't know to what extent this might have mollified the South and prevented... Uh, conflict and separation, but if Abe Lincoln had understood economics better, uh, he would have realized that the South had a very legitimate gripe against high northern tariffs. Most revenue to the federal government pre-Civil War was uh, from tariffs, and most of that was coming from southern states. So the southern states were funding most of the federal government, and they were being, being hammered, uh, uh, kind of a double whammy, because High tariffs were secured mainly for the benefit of northern manufacturers. There was no particular benefit to the South. Uh, it had no, very little manufacturing. The tariffs were aimed to benefit the North, wipe out their competition from overseas uh, in manufactured goods. And because the tariff uh, did that, it uh, reduced foreign markets for southern exports. 
So they not only were paying the tariff, and most of it, they were uh, uh, suffering from the effects on their export industries from the high tariff. If only Abe Lincoln had said, look, you know, you can't leave, but I'm, I changed my mind on the tariff uh, because that's bad economics. Who knows? Might have been different. He centralized the banking system. He supported the greenback uh, paper inflation. Uh, he was a high taxer. Um, and he was a latecomer to uh, the anti-slavery movement. I think we need to acknowledge that, yes, he was the president who, uh, uh, during whose term uh, slavery ended, but it wasn't because uh, he was first on the bandwagon and he didn't fight the war to end slavery. That, that came much later. So I'd give him uh, lower than most historians uh, would give him, but not the worst. Let's thank Larry one more time. For this. Thank you. Thank you very much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa Zsa.